We find the disciples here saying, we ought to obey God rather than men. You know, the word ought is an old English word that means owe. Owe. O-W-E. We owe it to God to obey Him. And as you look at bloody Calvary and our Savior who swung on the nails of the cross and suffered and bled and died for our sake, we owe it to Him. We owe it to Him. We ought to obey God rather than men. We owe it to God to obey Him. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Bibles, please, at this time, and turn to the book of Acts in the fifth chapter, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5. This has been quite a ride through this book. I've enjoyed it. And it all started out with the Holy Spirit uh, coming down upon those disciples there, and they uh, got out there with the gospel, and the lost came to Christ, and the demons and the hordes of hell are being steamrolled at this particular time. And so the devil is trying to snuff out the whole Christian thing right here and there and, and, and annihilate the movement in its inception. And he tries throwing the disciples in jail, and that doesn't work. Then he tries an inside job, and that doesn't work. Then he tries throwing the disciples in jail again. And what we find is God provides a sanctified jailbreak. And that's where we pick it up in verse number 19 of Acts chapter 5 here. It says, But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came and they that were with him and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and said, or or told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter And the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. I've underlined those eight words in my Bible. We ought to obey God rather than men. We're going to be talking today about obeying man or God. Obeying man or God. Let's ask the Lord to help us listen today, shall we? Father, we come before Thee. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to be here today, the privilege to preach and teach in freedom like this. We ask you to bless your word as it's 
proclaimed. We just pray now that it would find lodging in each and every heart and it would accomplish your holy and perfect will in every life. We pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that Christ had ascended back up to heaven. The Holy Spirit had come down. The apostles had gone out. The lost had come in. And this church in Jerusalem is just getting filled as the devil is getting steamrolled here. We find that before the Lord went up to heaven, he gave the plan. And the plan was the Great Commission. It was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and then to baptize the converts, and then to train them in the things of God. That was the plan, but that plan was worthless without power. They had to have power to their plan. So in the very next chapter, we find that the Spirit of God falls upon that church there, and they are empowered on the day of Pentecost. So they have a plan, they have power, But both of those would be worthless if they didn't have a third P, the performance of it, to carry it out. You see, you can have a plan and you can even have God's power. But if there's a failure to perform, it's all for naught. Now, here's where obedience comes into the picture because performance is obedience. It is a following through. And you and I can talk about vision and we ought to have vision. And you and I can talk about faith and we ought to have faith. But without obedience, they're worthless, really. And so we sing, trust and what? Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And if we don't obey, we're really not trusting. That's the bottom line. Now, let me just say the English word for believe, and we say we're believers, we believe. The English word, the old English word for believe is by live. It sounds like believe, doesn't it? We get our word believe from it, by, live, or living by, really living by what we claim to believe. And your faith and my faith are no greater than our obedience. You follow me? Your family's faith is no greater than your family's obedience. This church's faith is no greater than our obedience as a church. Now, we're not saved by works. We know that. And we're not saved by faith and works. But we ought to have a faith that works, right? And isn't that what James was talking about? Faith without works is dead. A dead faith that doesn't obey is a synthetic faith. And a synthetic faith is the result of a synthetic salvation. And there are a lot of people that are claiming they know the Lord, but they're not obeying. They're not following through. Somebody so well said the railroad of redemption runs on two rails. Trust and obey. You've heard of the old B&N. But this is the old T&O. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Now the question is, are we obeying man or are we obeying God? That's the $64,000 question. As we have looked at Acts chapter 5, we saw that there was a problem with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling governing board of body, uh, body there in Israel uh, over the people. And it was more than just a religious jurisdiction. It was like their supreme court of the land. So the Sanhedrin is bothered by what's going on. And so they take the apostles and they lay hands on them in verse number 18. They throw them in prison. But we find in verse number 19 that the angel of the Lord comes and he rescues the apostles from the prison. And that's where we start today with what I call the elusive disciples. The elusive disciples are the, the, the vanishing apostles. In verse number 19, Bible says with the angel of the Lord by night 
opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came and they that were with him and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, were they ever in for surprise? The disciples weren't there. The angel of the Lord had opened the cell and let them out and said, Go back to the temple and preach. You had to wonder when these apostles ever got any sleep. (laughs) They have to get up and and, uh, what little sleep they have, I'm sure that they're exhausted, but that's the ministry. Now, here's the Sanhedrin and they've, they've spent the night in their cushy little feather beds with visions of money dancing over their head. And, and now the time has come the next morning when it's business. They're going to take care of business. And in verse number 21, we find it mentions the high priest calls together the Sanhedrin. This would be Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the same scoundrel that condemned Jesus Christ to death. And so he calls the Sanhedrin together, and it's time to back up those threats. It's time to punish these apostles here. It's time to uh, get physical and, and to rough up the ringleaders here of this whole thing, this Christian deal here, this cult, they thought as it was, of the Nazarene. And so here's the high priest. What's really sad about this is the high priest thing goes way back to Exodus and Leviticus In fact, it goes back to Aaron. It was once a very honorable position to be the high priest. And so it started with Aaron. It went on to Eliezer from there. And then Phinehas, that's the fellow with the javelin. And and he really took that office very seriously there. It was the lineage of the Levites here, the Levitical lineage here. But it had become very, very corrupted. Very corrupted. And, and so if you can picture this here, they call together the Sanhedrin. And they give their greetings as folks are coming in. Shalom, Caiaphas. Oh, shalom, Annas. And shalom, brethren. And, and they do a little small talk. They have a, a bit of tea. And, and uh, then they kind of just sit down and, and say, bring on the heretics. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. And somebody... Uh, clears their throat and they wait some more and somebody strokes their long beard and they wait some more there's this pause and this pause and this pause and and the heretics aren't coming we find in verse number 22 it says but when the officers came and found them not in the prison they returned and told saying the prison truly found we shut with all safety and the keeper standing without before the doors but when we had opened we found no man inside, no man within. And this was a public prison. We talked about that last time. It was an open jail, open to the elements. Might have had a roof on it. It might have had four walls around it. But it was much like an old English jail where the wall came up maybe about three-fourths of the way up. It was about six foot high, and there were bars the last one-fourth. And so everybody could walk by and see who's in the public jail here. Now, maybe they thought the apostles were slumped down, uh, sleeping on the uh, side of the wall there, whatever. They didn't see them inside, but they didn't really worry about it. But here we find the, the apostles weren't in there anymore. And they come inside and the thing is empty. Maybe an imprint in the sand where the apostles had been lying. Maybe a, a mouse over in the corner eating cheese, nibbling on some. But, but there were no men inside. They had a sanctified jailbreak there. And they had hoped to publicly humiliate those apostles. And now they're the ones wiping egg off their face. They're the ones publicly humiliated here. And we find that the Lord had freed all 12 men. 
the jail was empty. And so the guards come back empty-handed, and they say, everything was intact. The lock was on. The guards were standing there. But we found no men within. And so we find here the elusive disciples. But secondly, we find an erroneous deduction. An erroneous deduction. Wishful thinking, really, on the part of the Sanhedrin. We pick it up in verse 24, and it says, Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. There's the erroneous deduction. They doubted whether this thing would really grow. The word doubted in the Greek there means perplexed. They were perplexed. And they were at a loss. They're stunned. Have you ever been at a loss? I mean, these guys had tried everything and how frustrating this had been. And so now they're perplexed. They're at a loss and the cage is locked. No question about that. But a dozen men had vanished, flown the coop, weren't in there anymore. And so they call in the guards and the guards are as shocked as the Sanhedrin is. Well, we have no idea what happened to them, boss. And so they check the lock. Well, the lock is still good here, but the apostles are gone. Now, think about this. If the apostles had blown town, or if they had even gone underground at that point to carry on, they would have been branded as a bunch of religious zealots who were trying to do something here, and, and the Sanhedrin could have discredited them. Or if they had flown to Galilee, back where they were from, they would have said good riddance there, and uh, they'd have bad-mouthed them. But that's not what the apostles did. Where did they go? They went right back to the temple, the center of Judaism, the center of the Jewish religion, the backyard of the Sanhedrin. They had the nerve (laughs) to get out of jail and to go right back to that temple. Oh, the Sanhedrin's livid. They They are infuriated beside themselves. Well, they'd started this whole thing. And and now they don't know how to finish it. They just can't get rid of these guys here. In verse 24, it says, Now when the chief or the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Here's where they're disillusioned. We find a disillusioned devil here. And, And they're kind of kidding themselves. They're at wit's end. They've tried persecution. They've tried an inside job. The devil had tried to get Ananias and Sapphira to mess things up. That didn't work. So again, they try external pressure and nothing seems to be working. So they kid themselves and they say, ah, it probably won't come to anything here. They're trying to convince themselves, this is no biggie and uh, this thing will die down here and it'll blow over. We don't have to worry about it. But the truth be known, within a few short years, you know what they were saying about Bible-believing Christians? In Acts 17.6, they said, these that have turned the world upside down, are come hither also. So here's the Sanhedrin saying, ah, we doubt what this thing will grow. And then within a very short time, they're turning the whole world upside down. And 2,000 years later, Christianity has reached every corner of this globe. Now, in verse number 24, I note the word doubted. It seems beyond me that these guys could be doubting this movement here. Doubting it, period. They had seen miracle after miracle. We talked about the miracles last time. This very jailbreak is a miracle. And people are flocking to Jerusalem to to see these miracles. And you would think it would have convinced the most stubborn person. But let me just remind you of something. These are religious Jews. They're not going to say Uncle Easy here. 
The Jews actually in the Bible are found to be notorious for stubbornness. In fact, we find God saying in Psalm 32 verse 9, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Here's God talking to his people and saying, don't act like a mule. A mule is stubborn. It, it's, it's, it has to be subdued with a bit in its mouth or a, a bridle, if you will. You know, we talk in this area about stubborn Norwegians. Maybe there's some stubborn Norwegians here. We talk in this area about stubborn Germans, if you will. But to be honest with you, it goes way back. It, when it comes to stubbornness, I don't know if anyone can top the religious Jews of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but even way back in Exodus 32, verse 9, the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They were known for being stubborn and stiff-necked. This is the group that said, we want a king like all the other nations. And God did everything in his power to convince him this is a bad idea. And he laid it out. Here's all the liabilities. Here's all the cons. You really still want a king? Yeah, yeah, we want a king. Seriously? And over the years, we find it's just one stubborn event after another. And finally, just before they fell in Second Chronicles 24, 19, the Bible says, Yet he, God, sent prophets to them, the Jews, to bring them again unto the Lord... And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. Just so stubborn. They set their face like a flint. They, they dug in and they said, we will not embrace this. What was the problem? Well, in Zechariah 7.11, it says they refused to hearken. And they pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. You ever put your hand on somebody's shoulder trying to reason with them and mm, they do that. They pull that shoulder away. The Jews were doing that. They refused to hearken. They pulled away the shoulders. They stopped their ears. Have you ever had anyone plug their ears, literally, because they didn't want to hear what you had to say? We used to do that when we were kids. One of my brothers would chide me or whatever, and we'd put our hands over our ears, and then we'd even go, mah, 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 so we really can't hear them, you know? That's the Jewish people, pulling away that shoulder, stopping their ears that they should not hear. Stubbornness. You know anyone who's stubborn? Don't look at the person next to you or whatever it might be. Maybe it's you. Stubbornness is not a godly characteristic. And we find it within the Sanhedrin here, no less. And, and honestly, by 70 AD, just a few years from this, we'd find the nation of Israel ripe for judgment. And we'd find the Roman general Titus coming in and destroying the place. Here's the people that opposed John the Baptist first and destroyed him. They, op they opposed Jesus Christ next, and they destroyed him. And now it's the apostles, and they're trying to get rid of them. So here's the apostles, but they're missing. And the question is, where are they? Well, in verse 25, <laughs> Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And here's the Sanhedrin throwing their hands up, going, you got to be kidding me. We were hoping at the least they left town. Good riddance. But these men had the audacity to go back to that temple and teach the people. Why did they keep going back to the temple? Well, the Lord told them to, but that's also where the people were. That's where the souls were. Remember, they've been given the Great Commission here, folks. And that is to bring the gospel to the world, starting in Jerusalem. So we find these disciples here, and they're relentless. 
But on top of that, they're risking their lives. We got to know that. I mean, these, these folks on the Sanhedrin, they played for real. And so it could only be a concern and a love and a care on the part of the apostles that caused them to risk their lives. Now, we don't live in a country and we don't live at a time when we're sticking our neck out and risking our lives with the gospel. But if we care, we still will reach out to folks, won't we? And, and by the way, if you're here today, if you're listening today, and you have someone who kind of seems to be relentless in talking to you about Christ, and it might be even getting on your nerves, just know this. It's only because they care. It's because they love you. It's because they're concerned about your, your soul, your spirit. And you've got somebody who cares. Here's the apostles, and they're laying their life on the line. They had watched what the Sanhedrin did to Jesus Christ. It was absolutely awful. And in a few short chapters, we're going to find they're going to stone Stephen to death. And later on, James is going to go down and others. So the Sanhedrin played for real. There's, there's no question about that. And here's the Sanhedrin infuriated with these ignorant fishermen giving them this hard time. How dare they defy us? So they're going to arrest them. But they're going to have to be very careful when they arrest them. They're going to have to handle this thing real gingerly here, if you will, because this is touchy business. Uh, this whole thing of Christianity had become the talk of the town. And, and so they're going to go out to the temple, and they're going to bring the apostles back in, but they have to be careful. It could get ugly. They could cause a riot, because there was a lot of support building for the apostles at this time, and there were thousands of believers there in Jerusalem. So the, the temple police are going to have to use kid gloves as they bring in these apostles here. In verse number 26, it says, Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, <laughs> for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. So here they are, and they go to that temple, and they, uh, they say, Gentlemen, <clears throat> would, you, uh, <laughs> would you mind coming with us here? And it's touchy business because public opinion was on the upswing here for these disciples. And so you've got the Sanhedrin minding their P's and Q's, and putting on a good face, at least in public here. So you see the elusive disciples, you see the erroneous deduction, but thirdly, you see an earnest declaration. We'll see it in a moment here. Now, in verse 27, it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name, Jesus? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice they would not say the name Jesus. They did everything but say the name Jesus. They, they, they called him this name. They, they referred to this man's blood here. Now, they didn't ask how they got out of jail. Wouldn't you think that'd be the first thing they'd... How'd you guys get out of jail anyway? They didn't want to know. <laughs> it had happened already. And they're already frustrated enough. So they don't ask that at all. They just say in verse 28, Did not we straightly command you? We told you not to do this. Now, they knew for a fact that that was a violation of their authority, and the apostles knew it. They, they couldn't do that without Roman help, and they were up against it. But they also mentioned in verse 28 that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're, you're, you're trying to blame us for this man's blood. You're trying to... Make us guilty. Well, they were guilty. They had a guilty conscience. And they also had a short memory. They were guilty a matter of weeks earlier of having Jesus Christ crucified. 
as we go back to Matthew 27, 25, it then, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Guess who incited that mob? Guess who was part of this consent? Yeah, bring it on. We'll take the blame for it. Put his blood on us. And now they're concerned about that blood being put on them. They're concerned about taking blame for Calvary. In fact, they were guilty. They had instigated it. There's no question about that. And they knew it. However, the desire of the apostles was not to rub their nose in this thing. Not at all. These were souls. You go, but they were rats. They were scoundrels. I know. And you know. But they were eternity-bound souls. And the apostles were also trying to reach out to them. They needed to get saved. They were fighting the very God they claimed to serve. Can you imagine that? It's not the first time that's happened. They mention in verse 28, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. As I read that this last week, I thought, good. That's what a New Testament church is supposed to do. We are to fill our town with doctrine. And for nearly 32 years now, we have taken that doctrine door-to-door in the FM area. We have broadcasted over the airwaves at 100,000 watts, over 40,000 square miles, for the last 20 years. We have run our buses through this town. We have passed tracks out, I'm sure by the hundreds of thousands. We have gone up on the campus. We have uh, taken the gospel to our neighbors. And we have filled the FM area with our doctrine. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. What they did in the first century, we're supposed to be doing in the 21st century. Thank God for that. Now, in verse number 28, they they said, "We, we told you to stop preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our text. In verse number 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So simple, isn't it? It's the earnest declaration. We ought to obey God rather than men. They weren't backing down. It was very obvious here. They answered to a higher court than the Sanhedrin. They answered to the court of heaven. They answered to the court of God. They answered to the creator of the universe. They answered to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The the, the highest form of treason there is in this world is not to obey that court, that one. We ought to obey God rather than men. Why? Because God is God. God is God. That just says it all. God is God. We read in Jeremiah 11.3, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not. There is a curse on disobedience to God. You know, the only alternative to obedience is disobedience, which equals basically rebellion. We can't humor God when we're rebelling. You know, I mentioned King Saul a moment ago. God told the prophet Samuel to go to Saul with a message and carry something out. And the king did most of it, but he put his own little flair on it. He did his own little thing, and he altered what God had told him to do. By the way, we do that as well. And, and Saul said, well, I did this and this and this, but that wasn't good enough. He hadn't done that. It's kind of like we're, we're, when we're in disobedience and we're in rebellion, but we might throw a little extra money in the offering and say, okay, that makes up for it. No, no, you don't buy off God. And, and Saul didn't buy off God here. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, the prophet told Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, we don't normally equate rebellion with witchcraft, but it's in the devil's territory now. 
We're on his side of the fence. God says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And King Saul died a fool's death. You know, he was free to make his choices. He was not free to choose the consequences for his choices. May I say that again? God has left the choice up to you. You can obey, you can disobey. You can do what he says or you can rebel. You have the choice. You can make that choice. But you can't choose the consequences of that choice. And there are consequences for our choices. Now, Christians have been forgiven for their sin. We've talked about that recently. But may I say there are consequences if we disobey, if we don't repent. We need to really consider this. We don't allow our children to defy us, do we? At least we shouldn't. If you're a good parent here today, you do not allow your children to defy you for their own good. You're not doing them a favor if you let them defile you. If you have a child run home, you are not doing them a favor. Well, the same with God's children. God is not some cosmic policeman sitting up there making rule after rule after rule to try and spoil our fun. When he says thou shalt not, he's doing it for our own good and for his glory. He's trying to keep us from self-destruction. He says, obey me. You'll be so much happier if you do. So in, in verse number 29, the Bible says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And they didn't cave in. And that was the rub. Bottom line is, they have to do one or the other. The Sanhedrin is telling them, you obey us. Well, Jesus had said, take the gospel to the world. And so here's the apostles, and really it's a no-brainer. Folks, when it comes to a decision like that, you always obey the highest authority. It's just a rule to remember. You always obey the highest authority. And you don't find a higher authority in the universe than God himself. And so we find here, it really comes down to, are we going to obey man or are we going to obey God? And we say, well, that's a no-brainer pastor. Of course, we, we obey God. Do we? Or do we cave in sometimes? Or do we compromise sometimes? I find a good man, I mentioned him a moment ago, by the name of Aaron in the Old Testament, the first high priest. And you would say, wow, boy, he had it all together. Well, not exactly. You see, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the law, and while he's up there, while the cat's away, the mice want to play, and the people say to Aaron, make us gods. We don't know what happened to Moses. Let's head back to Egypt. Make us gods. And Aaron caves in. Why? Well, he obeyed man instead of God. He knew better than that, but he compromised out of a fear for the people. We read this in Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare, But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. How many times have we been ensnared with a fear of man? We have caved in because of what people will say, what people will think. And many times it's come down to the salvation of a soul. I've dealt with folks who needed to be born again. And they knew it. But boy, what will my wife say? Or what will my husband say? Or what will my parents say? Or what will my friends say if I do? And they put it off. What will people think? We find a fellow who is blind over in John chapter 9. And in so many words, he gets saved. It's so refreshing. He's the man who lost his religion that day, and he went to heaven as a result. But his parents, they won't. They won't budge. For fear of being booted out of the synagogue, they stayed in with the crusty, dusty old Judaism that 
that was a work salvation. And there are a number of examples in the Bible. You know, in, in, in John chapter uh, 7, the Bible mentions this in verse 12. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, Jesus. For some said, he is a good man. Howbeit no man spake openly of him. Why? For fear of the Jews. For fear of the Jews. The fear of man bringeth a snare. They were afraid of what the Pharisees would think. In fact, even the disciples of Jesus had a time when they got a little bit nervous. Christ was coming on pretty strong in his preaching. And the apostles, no less, were worried. In Matthew 15, 12, then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? As if Christ didn't know. As if Christ didn't know everything. But here's the apostles even concerned about, well, the, the, the Pharisees, no less, were offended by your preaching there. Well, there's a number of others in the Bible that were concerned about obeying man or kind of being undercover Christians, if you will. Nicodemus was one. In John 12, 42, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And it had been the best thing ever happened to them. But they hung on to their old dead religion. Joseph of Arimathea would be another classic example. In John 19, it says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, notice this, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You know of anyone who's ever capitulated because of the fear of man? I know of folks who have. Maybe it's us. But this same Peter, no less, by the way, before he found his courage, we find him bowing to a little maiden girl and caving in when she said, you're one of his followers, your speech gives you away. But now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he has the power of God on him. And in verse number 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, let me just stop and say here, we need to seek to obey civil authority in every way possible. Let's remember that, especially on this weekend. It's for everyone's good. Uh, you ought to go 55 miles an hour if the speed limit says 55 miles an hour. That's for everybody's good. You ought to pay your taxes if, if, if you need to pay taxes. Christ said, render to Caesar the things that be Caesar's. And that's how we have these nice paved roads. And that's how we have that police department. That's how we have this military strength in our country. A number of other things. So we ought to seek to obey civil authority as much as possible. In fact, this same Peter, who said we ought to obey God rather than men, did not have an in-your-face attitude when it came to civil authority. In fact, he said in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. So he's talking here about giving that due reverence to those who God has placed in authority. And I repeat, God has placed in authority. In Romans 13.1 it says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And by the way, it would be chaos if we did not have that system in place, if you will. But there is a time when authority goes rogue, isn't there? And uh, all we'd have to do is point to Hitler, um, maybe laws in other countries where if you have a second child, it has to be aborted. That is civil authority going rogue. And, and sometimes it might be even domestic authority. Maybe it's a Christian wife who has an unsaved husband who wants her to do certain things that aren't biblical. 
and you say, what do I do here? There, there is a time when authority contradicts God. What do you do here? Well, the apostles have the answer for the ages. In verse 29, they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. There comes a time when we have to make a choice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, back in the book of Daniel, were told to bow before an idol, before a statue, by the head of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't have to think about this. And it doesn't cause us any anxiety. They weren't trying to get smart, but they were saying in so many words, this is a no-brainer, it's already been decided, and they refused to bow down before that idol. And later on, Daniel refused to cave in as well. They had faith, and they trusted in God. In, in Psalm 118.6, the psalmist says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? And that's the bottom line. We ought to obey God rather than men. Are you up against some human opposition right now in your life? I don't know what area, what direction it's coming from, but you're up against some opposition, some human opposition. Well, let me give you a verse. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51, 12 said, God says, Who art thou, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? Who's man that we should be afraid of him? So take heart. If you're up against opposition right now, human opposition, you always obey the highest authority, and that is God. We're told in Isaiah 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength. We find the disciples here saying, We ought to obey God rather than men. You know, the word ought is an old English word that means owe. Owe. O-W-E. We owe it to God to obey Him. And as you look at bloody Calvary and our Savior who swung on the nails of the cross and suffered and bled and died, for our sake, we owe it to Him. We owe it to Him. We ought to obey God rather than men. We owe it to God to obey Him. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. (laughs) Dear Lord, I give myself to Thee. Tis all that I can do. Obedience is not drudgery. Obedience is a delight. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love Jesus? If you love him, keep his commandments. May I say that a servant will serve his master because he has to. An employee will serve his boss because he's paid to. But a child of God will obey his heavenly father because we love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Every morning, I report in for orders. Don't you? And, and I, I say this is Private Skeving reporting to General Jesus. What's the orders for today? And I hand God a, a blank sheet of paper with my name signed at the bottom And him with the liberty to fill it in, whatever it is, whatever it is, I'm willing to do that. Is there anything in your life currently that you're holding back? Any area of disobedience, any way in which you're not willing to submit to him? Anything, anything at all. May I encourage you to submit unconditionally. 
Because the answer for the ages is really found in those eight words. We ought to obey God rather than men. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.